You are the great rescuing God who stoops down to our level, though you are infinitely above our imagination of what's even possible in your glory and your majesty. And yet you stoop down to our level and you send your son Jesus to rescue us. And you speak to us. You desire a relationship with us. And when we discover that, that is the cry of our heart, that we want to be where you are. We want to be with you. We want to be in your presence. God, some of us don't even understand what that really means. We can't fathom what it means to be in a relationship with God, to know you, to be with you. We don't know what it would look like to be present with you, to experience you. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, using your word, you would show us what that means, that you would send your Spirit to enliven our hearts so that we would be able to experience firsthand what the Bible testifies to, that that being where you are is better than anything else. I pray now that you would use your word to sharpen us and to shape us, to know you and to walk in obedience to you day after day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Many years ago, my dad took a trip to Taiwan as part of his work with a missions organization. Uh, And as he was there, he and a coworker of his decided to go to the commercial district. So they went to one of these big markets, and somewhere along the line, they uh, saw a clothing store, and they decided, well, let's go in and kind of see what they have uh, for sale here. And immediately after stepping in, uh, a rather aggressive salesperson came uh, immediately up to him, walked over, and started talking to my dad's uh, friend and saying, okay, oh, this shirt would look great on you, and you're getting your measurements and stuff like that. This would, this would be perfect for you. You should really do that. And then he looks at my dad, and he laughs, and he goes back to his coworker and starts saying, oh, no, these pants would look great. It's a great color. You know, matches your eyes or whatever, brings out your eyes. And just talking to this again and look at my dad, laugh, and go back to the coworker. And my dad's sitting there thinking, what on earth? What is happening here? He's thinking like someone like wrote on his face or like maybe he somehow sprouted a second head that he didn't know about. And like, he's just, this is a really bizarre experience. You can imagine how unsettling it is to have someone aggressively trying to sell clothes to one person and then looking at you and just laughing. Maybe you've, uh, so they, they, uh, what they did is they ended up going back to their missionary friends who'd lived in Taiwan for a number of years and they understood the Taiwanese culture better. And they said, what was that about? What was happening there? Well, it turns out, uh, that clothing store didn't have any clothes that were tall enough to fit my dad. My dad's 6'4". Not a lot of Taiwanese people are 6'4". And so they didn't have clothes to fit him. So the guy was really embarrassed. And rather than telling him that or anything else, he just sort of laughed at him and then moved on. He was, he was laughing because he didn't know what else to do. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. You, you're stuck. You're not sure what else to do. And so you're just going to kind of like nervously laugh and ignore it and then hope it goes away. Uh, this is some, how some of us deal with conflict resolution, right? We think, oh, let's just ignore the problem, and then hopefully it'll just resolve itself, and we won't have to deal with it ever. But unfortunately, of course, this very rarely works. It did work in that clothes uh, store. My dad did eventually leave, and the guy's problem was gone. But for most of the situations that we face, uh, not dealing with them directly actually compounds the problem. It makes it bigger and bigger and worse and worse. Uh, we're approaching this morning a pretty uncomfortable topic for most of us. It's, it's dealing with sin in the church. For most of us, this is pretty touchy, and we'd rather kind of uh, set it aside and kind of ignore it, maybe laugh nervously, and hope that it will sort of just resolve itself and go away. But what we're going to discover uh, from our text of Scripture is that the right thing to do for the church is to deal with it directly, to deal with it seriously, to deal with it immediately. 
So we're continuing today in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the gospel for a messy church, and we're getting deeper into the messy situation that this church is in. There's a really big uh, issue right now, a really big unresolved sin that's very messy in their midst, and they have to learn to deal with it. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 13. Uh, Please turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already done that. Uh, you're more than welcome to borrow and even take home one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, and if you don't know where 1 Corinthians 5 is, that's totally fine too. Uh, in the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 1131. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the bottom line for the whole uh, message here is that we have to take sin seriously and we have to deal with it directly. Um, in order to build to that point, we're going to see two reasons why we have to deal with sin directly. So we're going to look at these two reasons in turn. Uh, the first reason that we have to deal with sin is for the good of the sinner. So this passage actually starts off with a pretty uh, strong word from Paul. He's pretty upset about what's happening, and so he expresses outrage at this sin that he hears about there. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Okay, so this is the messy situation, and it's really bad. It's sexual immorality. In biblical terms, sexual immorality is any kind of sexual activity outside of the husband-wife relationship. And this is a particularly bad one, and Paul highlights just how bad it is by saying even people who don't know anything about the biblical concept of sexual immorality and even people who don't know anything about God's directive commands about sex don't tolerate this kind of thing. Here's a man who claims to be a Christian. He is part of the church in Corinth, and he's having an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. Like This kind of thing doesn't even happen among the pagans, Paul is saying. And what makes it so maddening to him is that the church is just tolerating it. They're not doing anything about it. Paul has already said uh, earlier in the letter that this is a church that is proud of themselves. They feel like they are wise. They feel like they have great spiritual gifts in these kind of things. And he brings it up here again in this context. So this is happening, and you are proud. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? I mean, shouldn't you be so uh, upset about this that it's, it's like a death among you? You have to go into mourning because of this. Shouldn't you rather have put this man out of your common life together? Now, it's possible that they're actually feeling proud because of this situation. They seem to have a disconnect between the spiritual and the physical that we'll see in chapter 6 in a couple weeks here, where they feel like they are so spiritually strong that whatever they do with their bodies physically doesn't even impact them. It doesn't have an effect on them spiritually. So it's possible that they think that they're spiritually strong and proud because of this situation, but it's more likely that they're simply tolerating this sin. They're not dealing with it directly, and yet despite that sin, they're still thinking themselves really strong. Paul sees that they're not strong at all. This should be a a thing that really bothers the church here. This is a huge problem. And he, for himself, is very clear on what needs to happen. Look at verses 3 through 5. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 
So Paul sees this man's sin for what it is. He sees how serious this is, and so he is calling for urgent action on behalf of this church in Corinth. They have to gather together in the name of Jesus and make a judgment against this man. He is not repenting of his sin. He's continuing to engage in this illicit sexual relationship, and that has to stop. What they have to do is to remove him from the common life of their church. And the language here is very strong. Maybe it shocked you a little bit hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's a very firm statement. It's showing how serious they need to take this. This is a big deal. What we have to see, though, is that this is for the good of this particular man. This is the best thing that can happen for him because he has to see how serious his sin is. So in in other parts of Paul's letters, in, in the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Galatians, Paul will use a similar kind of language for uh, the destruction of the flesh or killing, destroying uh, the flesh. The flesh in that language isn't our physical bodies, but it's that natural part of us that is bent on rebelling against God and opposing him. So our flesh, in Paul's terms, is our natural inclination to kind of shake our fist at God, to hear his commands and say, I don't want any part of that. I'm going to live my own way. That's what Paul calls the flesh. And and so in Colossians uh, chapter 3, he's calling us to put that to death. So Colossians 3, 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, or in 1 Corinthians 5's term, flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in those ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. And he goes on to list uh, the outworking of our rebellion against God, other sinful activities. A same kind of thing in Galatians chapter 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what he wants the church to do here is to aid this man in getting rid of that part of his life that is living in opposition to God and rebellion against God. That's the hoped-for result here. The church's action of kicking this man out of their common life is to be a help in this regard. And we have to see that the hoped-for result of this isn't that the guy spends eternity in hell. The hoped-for result of this is that he understands the seriousness of his sins and he gets to understand the hopelessness of life outside of Christ and the hopelessness of life outside of the Christian community so that he will come to his senses, confess his sin, repent of it, change course, and receive the forgiveness and the healing and the salvation that's offered in Christ. That's the hoped-for result. That's why the the purpose clause is saying at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's the intention here. This is a really serious thing that's been happening. This man has to see how serious it is. You have to take serious action on behalf of the church to call him back to repentance so that he can get away from the path of destruction and back on the path of life. This is a serious matter. If we remove this from the spiritual realm for a minute and thought of it purely in physical terms, you'd be able to see very quickly that that we do this kind of thing. If there's a serious problem with us physically, we take serious action. So let's say that you have um, an upset stomach. You've had some abdominal pain, and you kind of ignore it for a while, and you can let it go for a while, but it's it's lingering. It's going weeks. It's going a month. And and so finally you decide you're going to go into the doctor and get this checked out. Well, they do some poking around and all this stuff, run their tests, and they tell you, you've got appendicitis. Your appendix is, is going to rupture if you don't do anything, and it's going to kill you. So what you need to do is to go into surgery immediately today. We'll remove it, and then you'll start the healing process. So what do you do? You could say, you know what, I really don't like hospitals. 
they make me uncomfortable. There's this kind of weird smell there, and it's all this, you know, bright lights and stuff like that, and, and I'm really afraid of what the doctor's bill is going to be when I, when I come back. And besides that, I don't like the idea of people swarming around me and the operating table and stuff like that. I don't really want them opening up my, my skin and getting in there and taking out an organ. And, and on top of all this, like, to be honest, my, my appendix is kind of my, my favorite uh, unnecessary body part. You know, it's, it's not needed, but I've, I've always had it there, and I've always lived with it, and I would kind of like to always have it for the rest of my life. It's, it's a part of me. I don't want to lose a part of me here. Well, you could do that, right? And then what would happen? You would die. It would kill you. What you need to do is to obey the doctor and have surgery and cut it out immediately. If you don't do that, if you don't take decisive action, it will destroy you. It will kill you. We see that in the physical realm. It's the same thing here spiritually. What this man is doing, having this, this ongoing unrepentant sexual relationship with his, with his stepmother, this will destroy him. It will eat him alive, and, and it, this is the path of destruction. He needs to understand that. So kicking this man out of the church isn't a malicious act on the part of the church. This is a gracious and redemptive act. I mean, that, that's the whole goal behind this. I mean, this is the first reason that we, that we take the hard, uh, the, uh, the hard step of, of dealing with sin seriously. It's for the good of the sinner. Sinners need to know that they're on the path of destruction, to be brought back from that. We do this for the good of the sinner. Now, this is a reminder to all of us of just how serious sin is. I think it's very easy for us to sort of get used to sin, kind of grow comfortable with, with our particular ways that we sort of uh, uh, live in rebellion against God and, and live in disobedience to Him. We just kind of maybe live with it a little bit, maybe manage it a little bit, say, oh, yeah, I'm not really pleased with that, but I'm not willing to take hard action to change it. We get used to it. But this is a very bad course. This is a dangerous road to walk on. So we need other followers of Jesus who can walk alongside us to show us how serious those, is, those things are to bring us back from the path of destruction so that we can walk in obedience to Christ. Now, one of the cool things about this situation in 1 Corinthians is that there is a 2 Corinthians. The next book in the Bible is 2 Corinthians, which means we get another look at this church a little bit later in time. And there's this great hint there in 2 Corinthians that not only did the church obey Paul's command and, and do what he's telling them to, but that the man actually responded to this. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is just a hint. It says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And we can't know for sure that this is the same situation, but there was something going on in Corinth where someone was, was sinning, and the church took that sin seriously and kicked someone out of the fellowship, and then they repented. It worked. And now the next step is for them to welcome him and to reaffirm their love for him and, and help him to see again that he is forgiven in Christ. It, it, there's a similar uh, kind of hint in the seventh chapter, just a few chapters later, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's talking about his experience of writing that first letter. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy because you were made sorry. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful, sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So again, it's getting at this same point. His letter has had its effect. 
He's not meant to hurt them, but he's meant to show them how serious their actions are and how much is at stake here. And that has happened. Godly sorrow has led to repentance. They have turned from that, and they have now led to salvation. They've received the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. That's the intended outcome. And that's always the intended outcome of godly church discipline. It's always for the good of this person. We take sin seriously to show our commitment to holiness, and then we offer forgiveness freely because Christ died to forgive us for these sins. So as we uphold these two things, a call to holiness and free forgiveness in Christ, it is a huge benefit to us as followers of Jesus. This is a huge opportunity for discipleship. Our commitment to holiness and forgiveness is a powerful means of drawing people to Christ and helping them to walk in him. So this is the first side of this, the first reason. We take sin seriously for the good of the sinner. Now we're going to see the second reason for this. We deal with sin and the church for the good of the church. And to understand this, Paul gives us uh, an illustration. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. These Christians here are boasting because they think they're a great church. They've got wisdom, they've got the appearance of power, they've got spiritual gifts and all these things. But their boasting has missed a part of what it means to be the church. That They've missed a crucial piece here. One little bit of sin impacts the whole community. If that's not dealt with, it's going to poison their whole community. It's like uh, he uses the illustration of yeast or leaven. It gets mixed in, and it's not like it's just one little part of the dough that's affected. It gets kneaded in, and, and it makes the whole, uh, the whole uh, batch of dough rise, right? We tend to think of yeast as a positive thing, but in their context, it was actually a negative thing. Uh, so think of it in negative terms, not like my bread rises, that's, that's actually a bad thing uh, in, in, the term, in the biblical terms here. They have to realize what has gone on here. Our, our uh, proverb would be, one bad apple spoils the whole barrel, right? It's the same kind of idea here. One uh, instance of unrepentant sin that's not dealt with is going to ruin, the, it's going to bring the entire church down with them. So the solution is to understand who they truly are in Christ and to live in light of that. So in chapter 3, Paul had said, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. The church is God's temple. That means it's sacred. It's, it's holy. It means we are called to be holy. Now, here's where we have to be clear. The holiness of the church doesn't become because we are really good people who have managed to become more or less perfect. The holiness of the church is because of the sacrifice of Christ. So he comes right back to the cross here. The holiness of the church is given to us by Christ. That as Jesus dies on the cross, he removes the guilt of our sin from us. He removes the power of our sin from us, and he gives us his righteousness. This is what it means for us to become holy is to receive the holiness of Jesus and be clothed with his holiness. But the church has to live now in light of that. We have to remember, put off the the flesh, the part of us that rebels against God, and to live in light of that holiness that we've been given by Christ. 
And what that means in this situation that's going on in the church in Corinth is that they have to remove this guy from their common life together. We're going to skip over verses 9 and 10 for now. We're going to come back to them in a moment. But listen to the clear command here in verse 11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And this is the application. This is the direct command that Paul is calling the the church in Corinth to do. And he's been building that all throughout. So in verse 2, should you not rather have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? In verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse 7, get rid of the old yeast. Now in verse 11, don't associate with anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus who's living this kind of life. Don't even eat with such people. So the point for the church's actions, they have to do something so decisive that it makes clear that this man is not one of us. He is not living in line with what we as God's people are called to in Christ. He is not living as a faithful follower of Jesus. So any kind of gathering that's specifically and solely for Christians, for example, the Lord's Supper, he can't participate in that anymore. Anything that's specifically for believers that marks believers from unbelievers, he's not part of that anymore. And it goes beyond that, that the Christians here can't continue to sort of be buddy-buddy with this guy anymore. They can't continue a friendship with him as if nothing has happened, because something has happened. They have had this, this deep and abiding friendship with him because they are one in Christ, right? They have that, that common core of, of following Christ, being centered in the cross together. So they have this, this deep, uh, lifelong friendship together. But this guy's done something to break that. He's now living outside of Christ. He's living in disobedience to him and not repenting of this sin. And so they can't act like there's still these close, this, this close common bond between them anymore because there isn't. He's acting like an unbeliever, and so he has to be put aside for them, from them. And we've already seen that this is for his good. There's a redemptive goal for him. But now we're also saying that this is for the good of the church because those who aren't yet followers of Jesus need to see that the church lives by a different set of standards. It doesn't mean that Christians are perfect. We're far from perfect. But we strive day in and day out to live in obedience to Jesus. We will be a different kind of a people. And when we fail, we confess our sins, we change course, we repent, and we receive God's forgiveness in Christ. That's what we do. And if we don't do that, if we allow sin to go on unrepentant in our lives, we don't deal with sin seriously, then we're no longer a lighthouse spreading the light of God's glory to those who watch. We're just another group of imperfect people without a lot of hope. See, how we live together matters. There's a huge impact here. We're supposed to be those who show what it means to live in obedience to Christ as a testament to those who don't yet know Jesus so that they'd see his greatness through our life together. So what the church has to do is to disassociate from this man so that they make it clear by their actions that they don't condone what he's doing. And that's not what we're about. That's essentially what they're saying as a church. So they've got to take immediate, serious, direct action because their integrity as a church depends upon it. And you've seen uh, non-Christian organizations do this too. I saw a news story from a week or so ago about a fast food employee that refused to serve uh, two police officers at a Whataburger restaurant in Texas. Now you hear that kind of a a headline and you read the article and what do you expect the company to to, to do? They've got to address it. If they ignore it, they're showing the public that that's the kind of thing that's condoned in their restaurants. 
And they're also saying to their employees that this is the kind of thing that is acceptable for them. So what did that company do? Immediately, they started an investigation. Overnight, they came through. They fired the, the individual who had refused service. They made a public apology to all the news outlets that uh, had covered the story, and they brought these two officers in and gave them a face-to-face apology too. In other words, they took clear, direct, immediate action. They've got to disassociate from this employee because he's doing something that this, that's, is not in line with their values. It's not in line with what they do. That's what the, the restaurant's saying. That's not us. That's not what we're about. In the same way that the church here has to be very clear to those who are watching and to those who are within that this kind of sin doesn't stand. This is direct rebellion against God. This will lead to death and destruction. It's going to destroy the man. It's going to destroy the church. So Paul's saying they can't associate with this sexually immoral man. Now he's got to go back and and clarify something because he has written them before on a similar point and they've missed what he's saying. So now let's go back to verse 9 and go through the end of the chapter. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunker or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So this is about internal matters within the church. You disassociate with a fellow who um, claims to be a follower of Jesus, who's not living in light of that, because the world and the church needs to see that that's not what we're about. That's not an acceptable kind of behavior. And he also needs to see that he has to change course. It doesn't mean that you don't associate with people who are not followers of Jesus who don't live by the standards of the Christian life. I mean, how could they, right? They don't have God's Spirit living in them. They don't have the desire to follow Christ. So why would we try to have them live by the standard of Christian holiness? It doesn't make sense. But this also misses a major reason that we are called to be holy, right? We are called to be holy to be a testimony to those who don't yet know Jesus, I think too often we actually do the reverse of this. We don't spend time with those who don't yet know Jesus, and we kind of uh, condemn them, but we allow sin to go unchecked in the church. Paul's calling for the exact opposite of that. See, 1 Peter 2.9 says that God has made us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why? So that we may declare God's praises. And as we do that, as we live as a, as a holy community, declaring God's praises, what we're doing is showing by our words and our actions as a community of faith, we're pointing to the one who has made us holy. We're pointing to Christ by our life together as a community. So we don't strive to be holy to make people think that we're really good people. We don't strive to be holy so that we can kind of look down upon them. We strive to be holy so that they would know the one who has called us to be holy and who has made us holy. This is about our mission as a church. We are called to make disciples of Jesus, and this is a powerful way for us to do that. As we show a commitment to holiness and as we show a commitment to grace and forgiveness, this is a powerful testimony to those who are not yet followers of Jesus that this is what our community is about. So how do we apply this kind of command in a context like ours. Paul is giving a particular set of 
commands to a specific situation in a particular church at a particular time. And in doing so, he's also uh, opening the door for us to understand how we can deal with sin seriously in the church today. Right? He's saying that we have to deal, we have to take sin seriously and we have to deal with it directly. We do this for the good of the sinner. We do this for the good of the church. So how do we do that uh, in our context? I have to confess that I don't think that we've done uh, particularly uh, well here consistently as a church. And as I've been preparing this week, it's been really convicting for me because I realize a big part of that burden lies on my shoulders. And I don't think I've been consistent in leading us as a church to really take sin seriously and and to root it out in our own lives and to to, uh, try to call each other to holiness and and accountability in that respect. So I, I apologize to you publicly for not leading you in that. And now let's take a look at how we can actually do that. So how do we improve on this so that we take sin seriously as a church and deal with it the right way? Well, Jesus actually gives us a great set of uh, criteria, a great uh, pathway for doing this. Uh, Many of you will know the passage in Matthew chapter 18, and it gives a very simple, very clear directive of what we're going to do when when we notice sin among us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So this is very clear, right? Your responsibility, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you claim the name of Christ, your responsibility when you see another person who claims the name of Christ caught in sin and not repenting, your responsibility is to go directly to that person and have a face-to-face private conversation with them saying, you know what, I think what you're doing here is wrong and I think it's going to destroy you if you continue down that course. Now, some of you will get uh, the shakes just thinking about having a conversation like that because that's a very hard conversation to have. But this is what Jesus is calling us to do. This is what it means to live in obedience to Christ, to strive to together be part of a Christian community that takes sin seriously. It starts at the most private level, one-to-one conversation. And see that Jesus' motivation is the same as Paul's. You've won them over. You've brought them back from destruction. Now, if they don't listen to that one-to-one conversation, you've got to escalate it out a little bit. You bring another person with you. You bring two more people with you. The, The point of this is so that they understand that what they're doing really is serious. This isn't just a kind of, um, you know, kind of shrug your shoulder and move on kind of thing. This is something that has to be dealt with or they're going to be destroyed. So if they even don't listen to that two- or three-person conversation, that's when you take it to the church and where the process from 1 Corinthians 5 takes place. 1 Corinthians 5 is the level of a, a kind of official church pronouncement as it is, like uh, removing someone from the common life of their church. They're gathering together in the name of Jesus as a church and saying, this person is not one of us. He's, he's living in unrepentant sin, and he has to understand that. Again, the purpose in all of this is for people to understand how serious their sin is to turn them back so that they would repent and receive forgiveness and be, uh, receive God's salvation. Now, just so you're aware, uh, the way that this is set up at the church level for us as a church is uh, primarily tied to membership. Uh, it's not a perfect system, but the reason we do it is because we expect that at a service like this, a public service, everybody's invited, that there will be people who are followers of Jesus and people who are not yet followers of Jesus, right? So at, we hope this is true. We, we hope those who aren't yet followers of Jesus are coming to our services so they can hear the good news of Jesus, they can um, ask questions, they can uh, see the life of the church together, and we pray and hope that they will come to find the life that we found in Jesus too. 
but we hope that there are unbelievers in our services. That means from a public perspective that, that at a service like this, there will be those that Paul would call inside the church and those that he would call outside the church. And so that's where membership becomes important for us. Our, our membership process is intended to help us to be able to follow the commands of Christian community here. So in the membership process, what we're essentially trying to do is to uh, vet out whether someone is truly a follower of Jesus. We hear their testimony, uh, we ask them some questions, these kind of things, but, but really we're trying to determine that someone is a genuine follower of Christ, seeking to live with Christ as their king. And for their part, the person who's entering into membership is putting themselves under the accountability of this body of believers so that we can do the kind of process that's outlined in Matthew 18 and outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because it helps us demonstrate holiness and forgiveness by clarifying, okay, these are people who are believers who are committed to living together and striving for holiness together to follow the Christian life. So that's kind of how that uh, context works out uh, here in our context. But there are two big problems that make it very difficult for us to actually do this. Uh, one of the problems is that many of us live very isolated lives. We are not willing to live in Christian community where people can know the sins of our hearts, can know the things that we're not dealing with, and then can sharpen us and point us back to the cross where we can receive forgiveness and healing and repentance. Right? Most of us tend to isolate ourselves out, especially when we're starting to drift toward more sinful activities, especially when we're starting to rebel more against God. We isolate ourselves, and therefore the Christian community can't really uh, bring it in the same level that we see in biblical terms here. The other reason that it's so hard for us to do this in our context is because it's very hard for us to take sin seriously. It's our own sinful tendencies. We don't take sin seriously enough in our own lives. You probably have things in your life that are there that you realize are not good things, and you don't like those things, but you allow them to persist. You're not willing to take the hard steps to bring someone else into that, to call them, to call you into account, to live in accountability with other believers. We don't take our own sin seriously enough to be able to take this hard action. And the other thing is, we don't take sin seriously enough in the church. You might see someone who is uh, living in rebellion against God, doing something that you see is a very destructive thing, but that face-to-face -face conversation seems so hard. And then what if they do ignore you? What if you do have to bring another person or two into it? That's a really awkward kind of a thing. We'd rather sort of leave it alone and hope it just kind of goes away if we ignore it long enough. Or worse, we see someone sinning, and rather than going to that person, we go to a different person and say, you know what, that person was doing that thing, and I don't think that thing was right. But in doing that, we've totally reversed the outcome that Paul is, and, and Jesus are calling us to. Because rather than going and talking to that person face to face with the hope of bringing them back, helping them to see the seriousness of their sin so that they'd repent, we're talking to another person and not allowing that person to see how bad it is. And then, rather than having a community of faith that's together striving for holiness, you've got a community of gossip and rumors and things like that. It, it disrupts the whole Christian community, and it doesn't give the sinner a chance to come back and receive forgiveness and healing. We have to change this. We have to. We are called as a church to help each other follow Christ. We take sin seriously for the good of, of others, for our own good, for our good as a church. There's a huge opportunity for us in this to be an authentic community that, that is hard on sin but huge on forgiveness because this is a huge opportunity for us to show those who don't yet know Jesus that this is what the church is. This is what the church does. I love a quote I came across uh, um, from a commentator on 1 Corinthians 5. 
The world is waiting to see such a church, a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, which in its time of gathering together combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immediacy and authority. The world is waiting to see this kind of a church that lives together well, pursuing holiness and calling one another to account, sharpening one another, and then offering forgiveness at repentance immediately, freely, in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is huge. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper together, and this is a meal that followers of Jesus take together to testify to the truth of what we're saying here, that the death of Jesus has offered us forgiveness for all of the sins of every single one of us for all time. In him, our sin is removed. In him, the guilt of that, the weight of that is forgiven. It's removed from us. So we take the bread, we take the cup, these very common everyday things as a reminder and a proclamation to one another that our life is found in Christ and in him alone. It's calling us back to live in light of the cross in every single area of life. Listen, Sin is serious. It is deadly serious. The only thing that could remove the guilt of sin from you and from me is the death of the Son of God in our place. And the only thing that can break the ongoing power of sin in your life and my life is God's Son dying on the cross and sending His Spirit then to to make us new, to renew our hearts. Sin is serious. But because of the grace of God, we don't hang our heads. Yes, we have failed. Yes, we are guilty of many things. We will continue to fail. But we are called back to the cross of Jesus Christ, where all of our failures, all of our guilt is removed in him. We have to be committed to walking together in this, calling each other to account on the hard things, having those hard conversations, and then reminding each other of the grace that's offered freely and fully in Jesus Christ, his son. I love the passage in 1 John chapter 1. It's a reminder that we need to come back to again and again and again. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, my fellow sinners, let's prepare to come to this table that proclaims our forgiveness that we are not defined any longer by our sin. We aren't defined as sinners, period. We are defined as those who have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of God in him, righteous in him, holy in him. He is our life. So we take this meal as a great reminder of that profound and huge truth. Please prepare your hearts with me in prayer. God, I thank you for this profound truth that you have sent your Son to rescue sinners like us. I pray that this meal would again testify to the death of Jesus on our behalf, that we would know him, that we would know the power of his forgiveness, and that that would be so real to us, so vivid to us, that the draw of sin would just be seen for its emptiness for how much of a huge void it is. It is nothing. You have given us everything in your Son. 
I pray that you would once again use this meal to form us as your people. Bring us back through the bread to the body of Christ that was broken for us. Bring us back again through the cup to the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And I pray that you would make us your holy people. Cleanse us, consecrate us, make us holy as we take this meal together. Some of us have sin in our lives right now. I pray that you would help us to confess those sins now, to receive your forgiveness, and to walk in step with your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.